as we begin, we see that the most important thing is that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. You know, the Bible just flat out just states the existence of God. It doesn't attempt to prove it. Certain things are so true that philosophers call them properly basic. They are so true that you cannot properly understand reality without them. From a biblical standpoint, the existence of God falls into this category. Either you believe in God or you don't. If you do, you're in good company. According to the latest poll that I could find, 89% of the people in the United States uh, believe in God. Nine out of 10 Americans say they believe in God. There's some atheists out there and their numbers may be growing, but they're still a tiny minority. Most Americans believe in God, even if they can't agree on what kind of God they believe in. If that's true, then it may seem unnecessary to uh, spend time on a sermon uh, to the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God. In a sense, it may be unnecessary because we are a Bible-believing church. This may be like a kindergarten lesson, a truth that we learned in Sunday school many years ago. But I think it's always dangerous to take our faith for granted. Maybe we don't know everything we think we know. And so I want us to unpack this phrase this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. The very first verse in the Bible establishes this truth in these majestic and simple words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now these are what you might call the headwaters of divine revelation. Everything God wants us to know starts right there. This verse is a declaration. It's not an argument. A few years ago, E.V. Hill preached a powerful sermon at a uh, Promise Keepers gathering in Chicago. And in his own unforgettable style, he preached for 40 minutes on just two words. God is. He said it over and over again. God is. He whispered it. God is. He shouted it. God is. He illustrated it. He declared it. He proclaimed it. And he dared anyone to deny it. You wouldn't think that you could preach that long on just two words. But he did. And when you think about it, you could preach a lot longer when your topic is as profound as God is. Once you get it settled in your heart that God is, a lot of other problems will be solved as well. And I can attest to that since I was one at one point that doubted the very existence of God. 
And let me go ahead and just tell you right now, if you're one of those, just pray that dangerous prayer that I prayed. God, if you're there, let me know. And I promise you, he will. Well, <clears throat> you know, I ran across a story a while back about a little boy. This little boy made himself a model boat. And it was just beautiful. It was perfect. He was so proud of it. And he took it out and he put it in a stream. And it floated and it was doing so well. And all of a sudden, the uh, wind caught the little sails on this boat and it took off downstream and he couldn't catch up with it. He ran and ran and ran and he never could catch up with his boat. It went around a corner and he couldn't get over the fence in time and it was out of sight. This boat that he spent so much time on and he was so proud of was gone. Several weeks later, he was walking through town and he looked in the in the window of a toy shop, there was his boat. It was his. And he was so overjoyed that his boat was there. And he went inside and he told the owner, he said, this is my boat. I made this boat. And he said, well, and the owner said, well, I'm sorry, son. I bought this boat from somebody else. And uh, if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it. And so the little boy said, well, hold on to it. And he went back home and he counted out he did have enough money, barely, to pay for it. So then he takes his money back and he pays for the boat. And then he just walks home overjoyed. And he says to his boat, now you're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. And that's what God did with us. He made us and then he bought us through his precious blood. Because God is the creator, he is the owner of all things. If I make a toy boat, I can truly say, this is mine. I made it. I own it. And since God made us, he has the absolute right of ownership over us. He can do with us as he pleases. Now, that's not a popular topic in contemporary American life. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. We want to live the way that we want to live and do whatever we feel like doing whenever we want to do it. And no one has the right to tell us what to do. But if God created us, he owns us. If he owns us, then we are accountable to him for everything we say and do and even think and that's not a happy thought for many people. Over 450 years ago, Martin Luther asked, what does it mean to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And here is his answer. I believe that God has created me and all that exists that he has given and still preserves my body and soul, my eyes, my ears, and all my members, my reason, and all the power of my soul, together with food and raiment, home and family, and all my property. 
that he daily provides abundantly for all the needs of my life, protects me from all danger, and guards and keeps me from all evil. And that he does this purely out of fatherly and divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all which I am in duty bound to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. To which I add, amen. <clears throat> now it is an inescapable truth that God has been made known to everyone. This fact comes from Romans 1, 19 through 20. Here it says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men and women are without excuse. Twice in verse 19, Paul uses the word plain to describe God's revelation of himself to all humankind. Then in verse 20, he adds that the truth about God is clearly seen in nature. We can say it this way. Everyone knows there is a God and the people who say they do not believe in God are deceiving themselves. God created all that we see around us. He created the sun, the stars, the moon, the planets. He created the comets and the asteroids. He created the quasars and the pulsars and any other kind of other stars you might think of. And even the black holes in space. Scientists estimate that there are over 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Just in our galaxy, 400 billion stars. My goodness. They estimate that there are more than 100 billion galaxies, each with at least 100 billion stars. That's a lot. Can you imagine? And God hung each one in its place and he called it by name. It says in Psalm 147 and 41, he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. No wonder the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. God has left his fingerprints all over the universe and you have to be blind not to see it. Truly, this is my father's world. And every rock, every twig, every river, and every mountain bears his personal signature. He signed his name to everything he made. The earth is marked, made by God in letters so big that you can't fail to see them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's the point of Romans uh, 1, 
No one fails to see it. Everyone knows something about God. No one has ever lived who missed this revelation. It doesn't matter whether they consciously thought about it or not. The truth has been there for all to see. So plainly laid out that no one could miss it. It doesn't matter whether you're a headhunter in Papua New Guinea or an upscale millennial in downtown Houston. No one could miss the truth about God. And no one has ever missed it because God made the truth about himself as plain as day. That's why Paul says in verse 20, they are without excuse. He means the whole human race knows about God. No one can say, I did not know. Everyone knows. And that explains why every culture on earth has some conception of a supreme being, however flawed that conception might be. Man was made to look for answers outside of himself. He is incurably religious by nature. The French philosopher Pascal said that inside the heart of every man, there is a God-shaped vacuum. And Augustine said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, we read that God has put eternity in the hearts of men, meaning that the longing for ultimate answers comes from God himself. God put that longing that God-shaped vacuum inside of the human heart to cause people to look for him. And that explains why atheism has never commanded the interest of a wide circle of people. Atheism is the most unnatural philosophy on the face of the earth. Idolatry is more natural than atheism because at least the idolater acknowledges a higher power outside of himself or herself. For a man to be an atheist or for a woman to be an atheist, they must not only deny the truth about God that they see in nature, they must also deliberately and repeatedly suppress the truth about God found in their own conscience. In the end, it takes more faith not to believe in God than to believe in God. Several years ago, Ray Comfort wrote a book and he gave it a very clever title. He says, God doesn't believe in atheists. And he's right. God exists, whether you believe it or not. God doesn't believe in atheists. It says in scripture, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God loves the atheist just like he loves all the sinners of the world. And an atheist can be saved just like anyone else. Deep down, the atheist really knows there is a God. He just won't admit it. And that's where I was. And that's what God pulled me out of. And so I can attest to this truth. You are what you believe. In a deep sense, you are what you believe. Start with your behavior. Where do your actions come from? Uh, from your feelings. And where do your feelings come from? Your attitudes. And where do your attitudes come from? Your values. And where do your values come from? 
They come from your beliefs. This was one of the first things that began to get my attention as I was, whenever I was handling employment dishonesty claims, uh, I would look and I would see here would be two people, both of them in same circumstances. One would steal from their employer and the other would not. And I wonder, what is it that causes one person to steal and another one who would starve before they would steal? And I tried to break it down. And I, I couldn't break it down to just nurture because you could see people from impoverished homes uh, and, and that was, they, had, they had values. And it was their values that made the difference. And where did those values come from? Something deep within them. It's what we call and what God calls the heart. And I discovered, and this is where I began to see that there was a spiritual side to humankind. Deep within, there's something that determines whether we go toward the good or whether we go toward the bad. There's a little arrow in there that points one way or the other. And uh, uh, anyway, that's what got me to really seeking whenever I began scratching my head over the people that I saw that would steal and be dishonest and lie and those who would rather die than do that. It boiled down to their values, and those values came from deep within their spirits. And I began to see that there was something in humanity that caused us to go one direction or the other. So, you trace it back far enough, and you always come to the same place. You are, and you act out of, you live out of what you believe. Consider this, this thought. What you believe determines your destiny. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Your eternal destiny depends on whether or not you believe in Jesus in your heart. Now then, this word believe, in Greek the word is pistuo, and it means to believe into something or someone. The English word believe has different meanings. If I say, I believe it's going to rain tomorrow, that's nothing more than a hunch, is it? If I say, I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, that refers to a settled historical fact. But if I say I believe in Jesus with all my heart, I've made a different sort of confession and statement altogether. Here's an example. Suppose I go to the doctor and says, I'm sorry, but you have a terrible disease that is life threatening. I have chemotherapy that can cure it, but it's very difficult to take and it is likely to make you sick. If you're willing to take it, you can be cured. In that case, to say, I believe in my doctor means something very specific. It doesn't mean I believe he really is a doctor. It doesn't mean uh, he's right when he says I have this disease. Or even I believe the treatment can cure me. Uh, you don't truly believe in your doctor 
until you roll up your sleeve and let them stick that needle in your arm. That's when you say you believe in your doctrine you've shown with your life. You believe. Until then, it's just talk. To believe in your doctor means to trust yourself completely into his care, to accept his diagnosis, and ultimately to put your life in his hands. And that's true faith. Believing in Jesus means to trust him completely with your eternal destiny. It means to trust in Jesus so completely that if he can't take you to heaven, you aren't going to go there. Another example, in the 19th century, the greatest tightrope walker in the world was a man named Charles Blondin. On June 30th, 1859, he became the first man in history to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Over 25,000 people had gathered there to watch him walk 1,100 feet suspended on a tiny rope 160 feet above the raging waters below. He worked without a net or safety harness of any kind. The slightest slip would prove fatal. And when he safely reached the Canadian side of the falls, the crowd just burst into a mighty roar. In the days that followed, he would walk across the falls many times, once I've discovered he walked across on stilts, if you can imagine that. Another time, he took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across and cooked an omelet and ate it. Once he carried his manager piggyback all the way across. And once he pushed a wheelbarrow across loaded with 350 pounds of cement. On one occasion, he asked the cheering spectators if they thought he could push a man across sitting in a wheelbarrow. And a mighty roar of approval uh, rose up from the crowd. Spying a man cheering loudly, he said, Sir, do you think I could safely carry you across in this wheelbarrow? And the guy said, Yeah, of course. Blondon smiled and said, Get in. And the fellow refused to get in. But that makes it clear, doesn't it? It's one thing to believe a man can walk across by himself. It's another thing to believe he can safely carry you across. But it's something else entirely to get into the wheelbarrow yourself. Believing in Jesus is like getting in the wheelbarrow. It's entrusting all that you are to all that he is. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of faith that makes all the difference. Jesus illustrated this. We say, I believe in God, the father. It was Jesus that started telling us to call God, our heavenly father. He referred to the one who sat on the throne as his father. If you'll recall, when he was 12 years old, he went missing and they found him in the temple. And you remember what he said? He said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Later on, when he was baptized, 
it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and a voice spoke out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He taught us to pray our father. There were times whenever he would just pray out loud and say, father, I thank you. He was always talking to God and calling him father. He entrusted his entire life. He committed himself to pleasing his father. So much so that at the very end of his life, when he's hanging on that cross and he's about to breathe his last breath on the face of this earth in his mortal body, what did he say? Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He loved his father. He trusted his father. He trusted his father with his very soul and existence and committed his last moments of life to his father, knowing that he could trust his father to bring him out safely on the other side. And he did. And that's the kind of faith that he has called us to have, where we commit ourselves totally to our Father. That's what we mean whenever I say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, there are a lot of people that uh, they, uh, they say, well, yeah, I believe in a loving Father and a loving Father would never send anybody to hell. I can't believe that a loving father would be a, a God of wrath. And they try to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. And the thing is, if they try to separate it like that, they haven't read all the way through the Bible because at the end, you're going to see some tough stuff happening, buddy. And uh, uh, in the book of Acts, you're going to see some things happening uh, where God takes care of people that are dishonoring him and uh, that are setting wrong examples. Now, the thing is, you cannot separate wrath from love. People try to do it, but I'll tell you, I love my children, I love my wife, and if you mess with them, you mess with me. And I may have to do some prison ministry if you start trying to hurt one of them, but I will take care of my own. They will feel my wrath because I love them. You cannot separate wrath from love. The two go together. If, uh, if you think that God is a God of love and he has no wrath, he really has no love. You're serving a cold and an impersonal God because the wrath cannot be teased out of the love. It's there and it's going to stay there. It's what makes him a wonderful God, really. Well, true belief is always personal. Last word here, the Apostle Creed begins with the words, I believe. Why, why doesn't it say we believe? And the answer is very, very simple. It's because true belief is always very deep and very, very personal. I can't believe for you and you can't believe for me. No wife can believe for her husband and parents, sad to say, cannot believe for their children.
You must make up your own mind. You can't live on the faith of those around you. The church is more than a gathering of people or a collection of Christians. At its heart, the church is a community of believers who are joined together by their common deep faith in Christ. And that's why the church for 2000 years has affirmed the Apostles' Creed. It expresses our common faith in Christ. True belief is utterly personal. The creed begins with two words, I believe. So as I close this morning, I ask, do you? Do you really believe? No one can sit on the fence forever. A Christian is a person who believes in God and is willing to come to him through his son, believing in him so deeply that he or she is willing to gladly commit their very spirits, their very being into his care. Do you? Your eternity hangs on your answer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.